Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name's Danny Horn. And my name's Victoria Lyons. This episode is all about the writing process, so naturally we've talked to a lot of our authors to find out what it is that inspires them, how they get started and what keeps them motivated. And as they're a really busy bunch, we had to take the interviews to them. So be prepared for a phone interview by the sea, a couple of quick interviews conducted here at Penguin Towers between meetings, and a series of interviews at the Puffin Party. When we donned our glad rags and went all Joan Rivers at the Oscars to catch some of the best children's authors before they hit the party. That's what's coming up. But first, Danny here managed to grab Joanna Rossiter, author of The Sea Change, during a quick break between teaching a creative writing course by the sea. Doesn't that sound idyllic? There is quite a bit of wind, but we like to think it's atmospheric and very fitting with the book. So here's Joanna Rossiter introducing the story. The novel is called The Sea Change, and it's set in an evacuated World War II ghost town, which is taken by the military in 1943, and they promise to give it back to the villagers at the end of the war, but instead the army hold on to it and completely destroy it. And really the story is about my character, Violet, who um, can't let go of her home. She can't move on from this place that was taken very suddenly from her. And it also follows the story of her daughter, Alice, who is caught up in a tsunami on the other side of the world. And as you read on, these narratives become more and more connected. And the title's actually quite fitting, because aren't you right by the sea right now? <laughs> I am, yeah. I'm just, uh, yeah, struggling to hear with the waves coming in <laughs> and the wind blowing. So, um, yeah, it's very atmospheric and quite fitting to the title of the book as well. And so... Um... As the podcast is about the writing process, it's also quite fitting that you're doing a writing retreat. Could you just tell us a little bit, maybe give us a few hints that you're giving the teenagers there? Yeah, um, so we're doing a week's worth of writing workshops at Lower West Cove. And we're looking at uh, landscapes and um, how to write about landscape in interesting ways and um, descriptions, um, making our descriptions a bit more unusual, um, interesting metaphors and similes, um, and just getting outside and enjoying the open air. And your book, The Sea Change, I mean, that is absolutely full of interesting landscapes and like really, really beautiful metaphors. Um, Did you have to do a lot of research to, to write that? Um, well, I love being outdoors anyway, so I think a lot of it just came from exploring the landscape around Wiltshire and Salisbury Plain, and it's a very unusual landscape, it's very barren and um, quite unique, it doesn't really feel like the rest of England, so I think that always fascinated me. Um, and I spent some time in India as well, I spent six months in Tamil Nadu, um, in South India, India. Um, and that inspired the, the Indian sections of the story, which are set during um, the aftermath of a tsunami. And I suppose I'm interested in landscapes which have been um, destroyed or altered in some way, either by war or natural disaster. Um, and the kind of the way in which landscapes can change in the, in the same way as communities and people and, and the relationship between the two. So obviously the book deals with some really weighty events, such as the tsunami and the requisition of a village during the Second World War. How, how do you go about tackling such big themes? Um, I think um, I actually had quite a lot of insecurity about it as a writer, um, particularly with the Imba story. I, I wondered at a number of points whether I was the right person to tell it. Um, it's not very widely known about outside of Wiltshire, and obviously it's a very personal thing, you know, somebody losing their home um, during the war. And I actually went to the Remembrance Day service um, that they hold in Imber every year in the church there um, and um, I remember thinking gosh 
when they're saying we will remember them. Um, actually, it's just a really forgotten sacrifice, and it was very important to me that I actually brought it to a wider audience. But at the same time, I felt um, a little bit um, insecure about doing that because it's not my story to tell. Um, and I think some of the, the themes in the tsunami story really deal with that insecurity because Alice is far away from home. She's not got um, a very sure sense of belonging or... Um, and there's a, it's a very kind of fragmented kind of debris-filled landscape. Um, she's trying to piece together her past. And I think some of Alice's story perhaps comes from my own insecurities about telling the imbecile story. So um, actually I found that some of my feelings towards the places that I was writing about came out in, in the narrative um, as I was writing them. I have to say that the Imber story is so interesting and I, I actually didn't know about it until I, until I read your book. What made you... Like, how did you even discover this story? Um, well, my grandfather actually trained on um, military plane. He's a colonel in the army um, after the Second World War. And my mum was brought up in Bratton, which is the, the neighbouring village to Imber. And so I knew about the kind of story of Imber growing up. Um, and then I got the opportunity to go and watch the army train in the village. Um, they still use it for training for Afghanistan today. Um, and it was really then that I, the story really hit home because I was standing in the ruins of the old schoolhouse and watching these soldiers fire rifles out of the window at each other. And I, it just really struck me what would this feel like if this was your home and you, you saw it being used in this way. Um, so I think it was my kind of family connection that led me to the village initially. Um, and then just seeing the way that the army still interact with it today was just very fascinating. And I knew it was a story that I wanted to tell. In your research, did you get to talk to any of the villagers from Imber? Um, there's only two surviving villagers left, and they're both very elderly, so I didn't actually get to talk to them directly. Um, but I talked to someone, a local historian, who um, written down a lot of their testimonies and when more of the villagers were still alive. And he was a very useful contact to have, um, as were a lot of the army who trade in the village today, um, who, who know quite a bit about its history. Um, so I would have loved to have um, met some of the villagers, but unfortunately um, there aren't very many of them left anymore. Well, I think it's really great that you've, you've shared this story. Can you talk us through a typical day as a writer? Um, well, it's, it's real mix, really. Sometimes um, it's, it, I have to treat it just like a normal job, so um, turn up at the library when it opens and leave when it shuts and just be quite disciplined about it. Other times it's mixed in with loads of really fun stuff like this retreat that I'm doing for teenagers um, and research obviously takes you to some really unusual places and you get to meet lots of interesting people. Um, but I suppose what uh, I think people think that being a writer is very glamorous but actually a lot of it is just um, quite hard grind in terms of just sitting down and making yourself get the book written um, and I think it takes quite a lot of discipline at times just sit in a room on your own for hours on end with made up people um, essentially so I think uh, yeah there were glamorous bits but then um, lots of kind of unglamorous bits as well. And if you could give one tip to yourself starting out the process what would that tip be? Oh I don't know that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think um, not to worry too much about what, what other people uh, think of your writing to be open to criticism and to feedback um but to you know just be confident if you feel like you've got a story to tell um 
just have the confidence to to write it down um, and to kind of, you know, reading is such a subjective thing that everybody's going to have a different opinion on what you do. So just having that confidence to put people's opinions on one side and actually focus on the story that um, that you want to tell. Well, it certainly was blowy. Joanna Ruster's debut novel, The Sea Change, is out now. We have some more advice on writing from John York, the man behind the most popular dramas on television. But next up, we have Giovanna Fletcher, wife of Tom Fletcher from McFly and author of Billy and Me, telling us all about her average day as a writer. The average day in the life of writing, it's going to be appalling, actually, to, to other authors. But So I get up about eight, I'll sit down, have breakfast, um, and then um, I'll get you know, dress into a fresh pair of pyjamas after a shower and then I'll come downstairs and I'll watch, actually, one thing I do need to watch. Oh no, first of all, I'll go through, you know, Daily Mail, check out all the gossip, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. And then at half past ten, I watch um, uh, this morning, just the first sort of five, ten minutes to catch up with the news, make sure that I'm, you know, I know what's going on in the world. And then I'll start to think about writing. <laughs> uh, and I'll go to my desk and I'll read over what I did the day before. If I'm honest, I probably don't write anything for lunch. And then, I'll, you know, it gets to the point where you're like, oh, actually, you know, it's not working. I've read everything I did yesterday. I'm going to go have some lunch. So I go have some lunch. And then I sit back down and I'll write about 200 words. <laughs> and then I'll be like, oh, I'm a bit tired now, actually. And then I'll have a nap. <laughs> And then about three o'clock, three o'clock to nine o'clock, I'll write. <laughs> so the rest of the day is just spent going, oh, I should be writing. <laughs> awful, 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 awful author. That was Giovanna Fletcher and her new book, Billy and Me, a gorgeously romantic debut novel about the redemptive power of love, is out now. Still to come, a reading from Children of the Days by one of Latin America's greatest living writers, but first... Graham Simpson, who has written perhaps one of the most endearing characters of all time, a certain Professor Don Tillman in The Rosie Project, fills us in in his not-so-day-to-day writing process. Well, you talk about the day-to-day writing process, and I think one of the things I want to get away from, for me anyway, it's not a day-to-day routine at all. Um, I was doing most of my writing, be it screenplay or the novel itself, in conjunction with having a regular job, and that job wasn't so regular. That job came in bursts. I was doing seminars and so forth. So I would have a week of very intense work and there was just no possibility of doing writing during that time. And then I might have a few days off. So I tended to do my writing not according to a, a daily routine, but whenever I could find the time. And sometimes that meant I would write for eight or 12 hours a day. I might write 8,000 words in a day. And then other days I wasn't writing at all. Um, there's a lot of... There's a lot said about um, write every day. Well, I didn't do that, but I did try to think about my, my writing every day. Um, people have, often have special places they like to write. I've got the opposite. I've got a place I don't like to write. It's the best set up place in my house to write. It's my office, but because I do business work there, just somehow the creative muse doesn't strike me there. So I will write in all sorts of unhealthy positions, propped up in a chair, lying on the bed with a laptop. In fact, I wrote the whole of the Rosie project on my on my notebook computer, which was not nearly as ergonomic as sitting in the proper chair with my with my desktop computer. But I would write on trains, I would write um, in aeroplanes, I'd write yeah, late at night. Um, and, and the great thing about having a plan when you write is that you can actually do 30 minutes of writing and you're making some progress. 
Whereas if you don't have a plan, you spend, you'll spend that 30 minutes just working out where you're going, where you're up to. The, the, the path to becoming a writer was that I read a book by Joe Queenan, an uh, American film critic called The Unkindest Cut, about how he made a movie um, in, for $7,000. Well, that was his goal originally. He eventually spent quite a lot more than that. But he made a, a home movie um, involving friends, borrowing equipment, all those sorts of things. And it was a great story. And I thought I would try to emulate that myself. So to cut a very long story short, because it's a saga in its own right, I spent around nine months making a 97-minute feature film. And when a, an Australian established film producer, Sue Maslin, saw that film, she commented that the screenplay wasn't too bad. In fact, she thought it had been done reasonably professionally. And uh, that planted a seed. I thought, wow, I can do this. All my life, I'd had dreams of writing a novel, but I genuinely didn't believe that I had the capability to do that. So I've got a romantic answer to how long it took me to write The Rosie Project and a, and a more pragmatic and honest answer. The romantic answer is four weeks. I sat down in February of 2012, blank computer screen, and four weeks later, I had a complete draft of The Rosie Project. Um, it took me three more weeks to tidy it up. And at that point, I entered it into, um, well, I sent it to publishers, um, entered into a competition, won the competition, got the publication contract. So there's your romantic story. Four weeks or seven weeks to write a novel, but it wasn't exactly from scratch. I had spent five years prior to that working on a screenplay for The Rosie Project, and that had gone through an enormous amount of effort and, and rework and redrafting. Um, so when I sat down to, um, to write the novel, I already had plot, I had characters, I had dialogue. Um, all I needed to do was to fill in Don's inner world and convert it to prose. The Rosie Project by Graeme Simsian is available now as both a hardback and an audiobook. Now we have a reading from a rather unusual book. Eduardo Galliano provides a literary calendar in Children of the Days, where each day brings with it a story, perhaps a journey, feast or tragedy that really happened on that date from all possible years and all corners of the world. Through this shimmering historical mosaic runs a common thread, one that joins humanity's darkest hours to its sweetest victories. 27th of June. We are all guilty. Directorium Inquisitorum, published by the Holy Inquisition in the 14th century, set down the rules for torture. The most important was, the accused who hesitates in his responses shall be tortured. Mm, powerful words, yet delivered so nicely from Mari Yamazaki, one of the press officers here at Penguin. And if you want to read more from this beautifully written book, which tells the story of all our lives, Eduardo Galliano's book, Children of the Days, is out now in hardback and ebook. Right, the interviews from the Puffin Party are coming up shortly, but next up, Mari joins us again to share three of John York's tips for writing screenplay. John York is the man responsible for more hours of drama on British television than anyone else, and more recently, the author of Into the Woods, a revelation of the fundamental structure and meaning of all stories. Number one. The architecture of all stories is pretty much the same. Take just one story. A dangerous monster threatens a community, and one person takes it upon himself or herself to kill the beast and restore happiness to the kingdom. It's the story of Jaws, but it's also the story of Beowulf, and it's more familiar than that. It's The Thing, it's Jurassic Park, it's The Blob, all films with tangible monsters. 
if you recast the monster in human form, it's also every Bond film, every episode of Spooks, House or CSI. You can see the same shape in The Exorcist, The Shining, Fatal Attraction, Psycho and Saw. The monster may change from a literal one in Nightmare on Elm Street to a corporation in Aaron Brockovich, but the underlying architecture in which a foe is vanquished and order is restored stays the same. Number two, without empathy, your work won't work. A whole generation remembers how they flinched when they saw the fisherman's decapitated head fall out of the boat and jaws. Professor Christian Kaisers of the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience has conducted extensive research into the way we watch and react to stories and his analysis suggests that when empathy works we become one, physiologically, with the protagonist. Think of how your body reacts when you watch the laser beam creep closer to Bond's groin in Goldfinger. Watching someone being hit activates the same areas of the brain as being hit the physiological reactions, though not the pain, are identical. Stories thus place us all on the same wavelength. We live what our protagonists live. If that connection doesn't take place, then any narrative simply won't work. Number six, what happens next? Jack Reach's creator, Lee Child, sounded almost apologetic when he described what gave his work such narrative momentum. You ask or imply a question at the beginning of your book and you absolutely self-consciously withhold the answer. It might feel cheap and meretricious, but it absolutely works. Child echoes no less an authority than E.M. Forster. Story, he said, has only one merit, that of making the audience want to know what happens next. And conversely, it can only have one fault, that of not making the audience want to know what happens next. All narrative works in the same way, by engaging our curiosity and withholding its satisfaction. The broadcaster Alistair Cook said, the secret of broadcasting was simple. It's the control of suspense, no matter what you're talking about. Gardening, economics, murder, you're telling a story. Every sentence should lead to the next sentence. If you say a dull sentence, people have the right to turn off. If narrative doesn't force you to ask, what happens next? It isn't working. Three brilliant tips for all aspiring screenwriters out there and many more can be found in John York's book Into the Woods, which is available now. Finally, back in early June, Victoria and I were fortunate enough to get an invite to the Puffin Party. So we popped on a dress, grabbed a mic and a recorder and parked ourselves firmly on a nice white sofa so we could catch all the amazing authors coming past, including Charlie Higson, Cathy Cassidy, Meg Rossoff, Phil Earl and Juliet Donaldson. As this was a live recording, there is quite a bit of chatter and quite a lot of glass clinking, which will hopefully make you feel like you're part of the party too. So first up to take the mic was Jacqueline Wilson, telling us how she found adapting E. Nesbitt's classic story, Five Children in It, and bringing it to the modern day audience. Well, I was a little anxious at first because I adore E. Nesbitt and very much wanted to do something that might be considered worthy of her. But once I got started in on the book, my own characters took over and I thought that Ines Brick probably wouldn't mind me borrowing her Samyad. And um, I don't think I've ever had such fun writing a book. And if you had met the Samyad when you were a little girl, what would you have wished for? Oh, that's easy. I would like to wish for the ability to write an entire book 
in one day. And then I could have all the rest of the year just to enjoy myself. <laughs> Perfect. And now we have Julia Donaldson, who's here to talk to us about the writing process. So first up, is there a secret to writing great verse? Well, it's very nice of you to call my verse great verse. I'm not sure if I'd say that. Um, I think two things really. One is just to immerse yourself in poetry, which I probably did from, from a very early age. But also, I'm afraid it just is a slog, you know. I mean, it does, you know, to try and perfect it so that it kind of trips off the tongue and seems as if it came to you just like that is actually hard work, whereas if you write something on the back of an envelope, it probably sounds as if it was very difficult to write. So now we have Jeremy Strong with us, and Jeremy, we just wanted to ask you, is there a secret to writing good jokes? Oh, that's such a hard question to answer. Um, uh, well, the, I guess the secret is to make people laugh. I can't, I can't think of any other way, way to put it, really. I mean, Obviously, it's got to be something, something funny, but it can, those things can come about in so many ways. And I, I usually rely on uh, characterization when I'm writing a story. Um, and it's the characters that, that provide the humor, so it's their interaction. Oh, fantastic. And um, could you share a joke with us? Uh, a chicken goes into the library, it goes up to the reception desk and says to the librarian, Bock! So the librarian gives the chicken a book and the chicken puts it under her wing and she walks out of the library. Next day the chicken returns to the library, goes back to the desk and says to the librarian, bok, bok. So the librarian gives the chicken two books and she puts them under her wing and she goes out of the library again. Third day the chicken comes back to the library, goes up to the desk and she says to the librarian, bok, bok, bok. So the librarian gives the chicken three books and the chicken puts them under her wing and she goes out of the library. And by this time the librarian is getting curious so she follows the chicken out of the library and they go down to the road and just down the road there's a pond and in the middle of the pond there's a lily pad and there's a big frog sitting on the lily pad and the chicken is holding up all these books that she's got from the library and each time she holds up one of the books the frog goes, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it. Next up we have Meg Rosoff here. So you've spoken before about being in the zone when you're writing. Is it something that you allow to come naturally to you or is, it, is there a trick you have to getting into the, the writing zone? Um, well, I probably would have said at some point that there was, you know, that any proper author could get into the zone whenever they, he or she really wanted to. Um, but actually it's um, terribly, <laughs> it's terribly elusive at the moment. In fact, I haven't seen the zone in months. So um, really, I haven't a clue what you do to get into the zone. I think you just sort of sit there and pray and, and, um, and hope it comes to you. I always think about Picasso who said, uh, when the muse comes, she will find me in my studio working. But, you know, these days if the muse came, they'd probably find me doing something completely irrelevant. <laughs> so, and then leave. <laughs> And you've written so many popular and successful books and your book, How I Live Now, is being turned into a film coming out later this year. What was it like seeing your book change from written form to being on the screen? Um, well, l luckily, I didn't see all the stages of it. Um, I wrote the very first screenplay and then they hired um, a series of professionals and I, 
I, I mean, I suppose they could have shown me every draft, but they were much kinder than that, and they didn't. And so I didn't really see a draft until very shortly before they started shooting, um, which was last summer. And it was kind of about the same time I met the cast and all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, I kind of knew that what they wanted me to do was to go in and go, oh, isn't it marvelous? Isn't it lovely? Oh, yes. Oh, what wonderful people. What a wonderful set, which is what I did. Um, and then the next thing I knew, I saw a finished film. And luckily, it was absolutely fantastic. And I genuinely love it, which, you know, they pay authors huge amounts of money in order for them to say that. But I do genuinely love the film. Um, but if I hadn't loved it, I would have just said, well, I, it didn't include me in the process. If they had, it would have been good. But as it was, it was good anyway. And now we have Charlie Higson with us. Um, Charlie, in both the Enemy series and Young Bond, you write, you write a lot of really young characters in a variety of crazy situations. What sort of research did you have to do to kind of write so many? Well, I was a child myself, which I think helped. So, certainly when I was writing The Young Bond, I was trying to remember what it was like when I was that age, 13, 14 years old, and the things that I was into and the things that I liked doing. Because in, in, in Young Bond, I wasn't writing about a contemporary kid. I was trying to think of universal things that made boys boys. And I don't think boys have particularly changed much since... So, since the 1920s when Ian Fleming was a boy, since the 30s when James Bond was a boy, and since I was a boy, and since my own, my own boys. I mean, I read it out to my boys as I was writing it, and I, I got their feedback. For the, for the Enemy series, um, I was writing about contemporary teenagers in London, and, and, and younger kids as well. Um, and again, I just really used to use my own kids. I saw what they were like, what they were like with their friends. And, you know, we're all encouraged to think that you know teenagers are terrible and it wasn't like this in our day but every generation thinks that young people are awful and they've changed everything in the world you, you look back at people writing in Roman times and they were saying oh this new generation of children are, are awful they've got no respect for authority their language is terrible it cannot have been 2,000 years of decline of teenagers that were brilliant 2,000 years so, so teenagers have always been teenagers um, but, you know, the, I suppose some of the language and, and the stuff they're into, it was a real help to have. I couldn't have written the books without having boys of my own. Do you think your boys would let you say who, which characters in the Enemy series they're most like? Well, no, I'd never really base any of my characters on real people. But one or two tiny ones. Um, I know some writers do. You know, every, everything they write is based on something they've experienced or something that's happened to a friend of theirs and it's all based on people they I don't really write like that. I, I take am amalgams, I suppose. Um, and certainly there are bits and pieces that my kids say to me, really about how they think about life and their own lives, which I sometimes put in the mouths of other characters, but the characters themselves are in no way based on them. And joining us now is Phil Earl. Um, I would describe your books and characters as raw, you know, they're real characters and real situations. Uh, so I'm just wondering, what do you do to research these characters? I think um, research is something that I've not really ever done a lot of in, 
it tends to get in the way of what I want to write. I don't know, maybe I'm quite impulsive when I write. Um, in my first two books, certainly, I did no research because they were about children's homes, which was something that I'd worked in. So I felt like all the research that I needed was kind of within me, really, in terms of what I'd seen and the children I'd met. Um, with, with, with Heroic, which is half set, um, over in Afghanistan, uh, following the life of a young soldier over there. I mean, obviously, then I needed to do some research. Um, but I wanted to find a balance. I, I didn't want to get so laden down in it that it, it kind of stopped me putting myself within his situation. Do you know what I mean? So um, I, I, I kind of surrounded myself with as, with as many quick reads as I could. I read a couple of uh, autobiographies from young soldiers who were kind of 18, 19, 20 when they went over there. Because I was fascinated by the fact that there were young men and young women serving overseas who were uh, are barely old enough to go to university. You know, these are kids who've really just had their school proms, some of them, and then a few months later, they're kind of shipped out overseas and they're, and they're putting their life on the line. And I was, I was kind of fascinated at how you, at such a young age, 18, when your brain is still developing and, and your character is still developing, how on earth you cope with, with, with you know, being exposed to, to, to that level of violence and, uh, and things that really just don't make sense. So I really wanted to put myself in that situation. I think when I write generally, I want to I try and imagine how would I react to it rather than how would someone else react to it. So it was, it was about striking a balance. I also watched a lot of films, and not necessarily films about Afghanistan, but, but films that just carried, uh, talked about war generally. That, that, that you know, madness, how does it feel when you're landing on the beaches at Normandy and bullets are ricocheting off your helmet and passing through your backpack and stuff, you know? So, and I'm a big film watcher. I'm a big believer in, in, in watching films to help my writing. So, because I'm quite a lazy reader. So, you know, it kind of helped me like that. So that was really the research I did. I really wanted to speak to some young soldiers and I got in touch with a couple of charities. Yeah, I, I couldn't, we, we couldn't, understandably, they were reluctant to expose young people that were coming back and maybe struggling with what they'd seen. They didn't want to expose them again to having to talk about it. So, but in a way, I was quite pleased with that. It allowed me to do the work myself in a lot of ways. And you've mentioned Heroic, and the, one of the brothers goes off to fight in Afghanistan, but his younger brother stays home in England and tries to sort of hold everything together yeah. and care for the family like his brother used yeah. to. And I guess it just shows that life on the whole, or for the most part, can be a struggle and a, a battle in some sense. So yeah. what do you think defines a hero? I think it's, um, it's putting someone ordinary in an extraordinary situation. You know, and that doesn't necessarily have to be the big things. It doesn't have to be a, a life-defining moment on the front line in Afghanistan. It, it can be something as, as kind of seemingly straightforward as, as getting up in the morning and managing to put enough food on the table to keep your family fed. I, I'm a really big believer that, like, um, I, I really admire people that write fantasy because it, I don't feel like I've got that in me. I don't have that level of imagination. But for me, it's that thing of finding those nuggets in everyday life. We're, we're surrounded by stories every day. And I love that idea of the fact that in, in, in everyday lives, there's terrific drama. And I was brought up in Hull, in the northeast, and we had a really strong theatre tradition there, a place called Hull Truck Theatre, that, that did a lot of plays that were really just handling everyday lives. Yet they were, they were funny and they were tragic and they were tense. And that really kind of influenced the kind of stuff I wanted to write, I think. Now we have Michelle Paver with us, who's going to answer a couple of questions about the writing process. So, Michelle, your writing is so well researched and you really immerse your readers in the world of the stories that you're writing. Can you just tell us a little bit about your research methods? Yeah, well, what I try to do, basically, it's very simple. I try to do whatever my characters are going to do. So if they're going to make friends with wolves, that's what I do. If they swim with wild dolphins or killer whales, that's what I do. Um, 
if they're going to get involved in an erupting volcano, I feel I have to climb one too. Um, it's just that, you know, you can tell a lot from a TV documentary, but it's a much better if you actually do it yourself and then you get the smells and the sounds and the fear <laughs> and the danger. Oh, wow, that's really fantastic. And um, The Burning Shadow, which is the second book in the Gods and Warriors series, is out on the 1st of August. As someone who's a big fan and really excited, could you just give us a little hint about what to expect? Yes, well, Hylas, our hero from book one, uh, is caught and sold as a slave, set to work in the, in the mines deep underground. Um, Pyrrha, of course, the high priest, daughter of the high priestess, is desperate to escape. Fate brings them together on this weird smoking mountain where they befriend a, a lion cub who's lost her parents. Um, but time is running out because, as you might have guessed, that mountain is a volcano. So watch this space. It's probably the most exciting climax I've ever written. I'm really pleased with it. And finally, joining us at the Puffin Party is Cathy Cassidy. So my first question is, what has been your inspiration behind your books? And what do you go through to develop your characters and the different storylines? Um, I guess ideas are everywhere, but the way that I love to develop ideas and little sparks of inspiration is by daydreaming. Um, I kind of... You know, you, you can find all sorts of things that might get your imagination going, but for me, to just switch that front part of your mind off a little bit and let yourself drift, um, it's, it's kind of a way of bringing all those threads and ideas together, and it helps to weave them into a story, sometimes without you even meaning to, you know, you don't even need to steer it some of the time. Sometimes it just happens all by itself, and I love that. It's, it's just so exciting, and, and you know, it's, it's the best bit of being an author to me. So the daydreaming thing is, is totally the reason that I'm an author, I guess. And you're probably one of Puffin's busiest authors, always on tour, uh, bringing out a new book each year, and your new one, Coco Caramel, is out this week. Uh, you also have a very successful YouTube channel, Kathy Cassidy TV. So how important is it for you to connect with your fans, and do you find they help you write the next book? I think it's really, really important for me because, um, and I never imagined that you would need to do the whole kind of going and meeting readers bit. I never really factored that in when I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't know that that was involved really. But um, it is probably one of the best bits for me now because what you do as a writer is it's quite a solitary, quiet thing and you, it's just you and your daydreams and your laptop really. When I'm working, it can be very quiet and, and solitary thing. So um, when you go out to schools or to book festivals or bookshop signings and you actually meet your readers, it is just incredible to get that feedback. And also the internet, which, which I'd never really imagined. I, didn't, I, I don't know, if I'd never been an author, I wonder if I would ever have kind of gone anywhere towards the internet. But, but because of the age of the kids that I write for, it's impossible to avoid. You know, you kind of, they can get at you, they can... And pass their feedback over, they can ask questions. And it, 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 the Kathy Cassidy TV idea, and Puffin, Puffin came up with this amazing idea, but really the kids were there first, sending in their, their video reviews of books and acting out little bits from, from the books. And all of that is so inspiring and exciting. And even today I've been doing school visits um, as part of my book tour for Coco Caramel. And you, you just look around a school hall and you see things that would inspire characters or little incidents that might inspire storylines. It's, you know, if, you're, if you love people watching and, you, you know, I really particularly like the, the age group that I write for. I think it's, it's such an exciting and changing kind of age to be. 
um, I don't know, it's, it's just brilliant. And it's, it's an aspect of writing that I don't think I could do without now. It's, it's magic, kind of makes it real. Jeremy Strong's chicken and frog joke still cracks me up. And Danny, it's just over a month until Michelle Paver's new book, The Burning Shadow, is out. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.